Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again. Oh, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online and on podcast for our first show of autumn 2020. And for those brave souls who've been doing FebFast, you survived not just 28, but a full 29 days. So congratulations. So why not reward yourselves? No, not by going out and having a quick lunchtime tipple, but by keeping it going through March. And on from there now, there's a challenge for you. And here in the studio, to give you strength and help you meet that challenge, we have our resident scientist, researcher and psychotherapist, Prudence Deer. Welcome to Autumn, Prudence. Good morning, Dr Nick. Yes, I wonder who's woken up with a hangover this morning. (laughs) But yeah, best if you don't, really. Lots of fluids. Yeah, it was the 29th, too early to break that little... (laughs) And next to her, we have our no longer medical student, but now fully qualified doctor and bleary-eyed from her countless hours on the wards, we have Mr diagnosis. Good morning. Does it, does it count if I had a drink after midnight? Is that all right? No, that's right. That's okay. That's March. That's fantastic. <laughs> Good. I'm in the clear. <laughs> and keeping this whole show on the road, the man who can manage all the knobs and buttons and intelligent comment all at the same time. Welcome to Panel Beater. Good morning, Dr. Nick. <laughs> he reaches for the microphone. <laughs> yeah, caught me by surprise when I'm sure I was on air today. Um, pinched a punch, first of the month. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Not rolling into uh, parched March um, after Feb fast or no, no Catholics in the room doing Lent. Do you remember that from school? Every first of the month someone would come up and I never remember to do it to other people. Pinch people a punch? Always got me first. And what's your response to it? Ow. Hitting a kick for being so quick. Oh, my goodness. I missed out so much at school. There we are. That's what happens from being one of the nerds. Uh, well, in today's show, we can't escape talking about coronavirus, and Prudence Deer will be helping us to understand what a pandemic actually means and, and how, we, other things. Yeah. Yeah, how we deal with its implications. Misdiagnosis will be rolling out her sweet tooth to help explain why not all sugars are necessarily bad for you. And before all that, in the light of concerns in the media this week about head injuries and sport, and particularly the AFL case of Polly Farmer. We have a special guest coming into the studio, Evelyn Chen, who's a neuropsychologist who's researching recovery from brain injury. But first, before we all that, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. What else could be in the news apart from coronavirus? I'm looking at you, Prudence. Okay, well, let's have a start. I'm, I'm obviously going to stay on this topic quite a lot today, I guess. But um, look, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere in the news. And actually, I was just looking at the Guardian headline today, and, and apparently the President of the United States had been quoted as saying that the whole thing was a hoax. Interesting hoax when they've now recorded their first death exactly. in Seattle. I think he's trying to weasel out of that one. But anyway... Um, we did have another case in Australia, actually. The ninth, I think, was reported yesterday in a person in Queensland. Um, and I guess, again, the significant thing about that is um, they're in quarantine and they've been um, in contact with other people in Australia and they're obviously tracing those contacts. 
But today, I mean, there's, we've seen, um, according to my count, now 63 countries have reported cases uh, worldwide. And um, in Australia, we've kind of invoked the emergency response plan. And we might talk, that doesn't really actually change very much because it's more about border controls than anything else. Um, but the key thing I think that we just should bear in mind is that there is currently still no evidence of community transmission. In other words, all the cases that we've reported so far have been contracted outside of Australia. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because the person who's died in Seattle in America um, was a fairly unwell person and with no known contact to anyone with the coronavirus and certainly hadn't well, been travelling. Yeah, so it's all so it's changing so fast, it isn't it? It absolutely is. We need to keep calm. <laughs> keep calm and carry <laughs> and I'll on. I'll help you with that a bit later. But I'll, get, I'll give you a tiny snippet from my own personal experience because we've had a few people bowl up saying, oh, I might have coronavirus. Uh, and when people have rung us up, we've asked them just to arrive by car and stay outside mm. the practice um, so that we can deal with them without them coming into the clinic. But we recently had someone who wandered into the clinic, sat down and touched all the furniture with a, a child and chatted away and then told the doctor, I've come from China and I might have coronavirus. And he was actually quite unwell. And so the doctor had to get gowned and gloved and so on. And we had to put the person in isolation, take the swabs. And the health department advised us, A, that uh, we had to pay for the transport of the swabs <laughs> because there was no mechanism to get the swabs to the lab. So we had to pay the courier fee, which seemed a bit rough. Secondly, it took an hour and a half of our doctors and nurses' time to clean and prepare the room and then clean it up afterwards. And thirdly, we were told if this guy tests positive, all the staff who's been in contact with him have to go on self-isolation for a mm-hmm. fortnight, which essentially means our entire practice has to close down. So what the current situation, and all this will change because everything changed, but the current situation means that practices like ourselves, small private practices, simply cannot look after or try and deal with anyone with suspected coronavirus because it will close the practice. It's quite a thought, isn't that? It's very challenging. And we don't, and we don't yeah. seem to have a public... I rang the local public hospital and said, well, this is our situation. What's your approach? They said, oh, well, they just bowl up in casualty and sit in triage and they get triaged by a nurse. Well, <laughs> really? There currently are no sort of special pathways for, you know, until yeah. we get sort of like to a point of like setting up special clinics where everyone has to go who's, you know, suspected of having uh, the condition. So misdiagnosis, you're ahead of the science here much more than I am. My advice suspicion is that we've moved past the concept of isolation and, and border control and so on because this this virus is not out there it's escaped uh, do you think that's right do you think we've we've now missed that particular boat and we could stop bothering about whether people should be isolated I think in terms of stop bothering, I don't think that is necessarily the right recommendation for something like this. Um, as you say, it is an evolving picture, and it, it always is with these kind of new pandemics and these new viruses. I'm certainly no expert in this. Oh, really? I, absolutely. Um, but you've the, been a doctor for, what, six weeks now? Exactly. <laughs> um, so the my understanding was the WHO's recommendation was not to quarantine people in terms of offshore quarantine because the issue with offshore quarantine is you have people entering the country and not declaring where they've been so maybe they fly to another country before flying to Australia and you can't trace that I mean you know it is I think with an illness like this we've got you know more air travel than ever before we've got more um, emigration we've got more people coming and visiting Australia than than we you know we had during the SARS virus it is much harder to contact trace everybody but at the same time with the technology we have we, we should be attempting to do it but I think only in hindsight will we know what the right approach to coronavirus will be 
And uh, Prudence, I don't know if you've gone as far as to looking at what should we be saying to people who are worried about this, uh, who think they might be infected or are starting to get the sniffles and so on? Well, as you've just pointed out, obviously, you know, getting medical attention is important, but how you do it. So actually, it's about phoning people up, including... In Victoria, we have a helpline. Yes, right. we do. We have what a, a great helpline. segue that was. It is, and I'm fashioning through with my... Here it is. 1800 675 Yep, don't call triple zero because that's for emergencies, but phone that hotline number. That's the Department of Health and Human Services, I think, and Victoria, and they will tell you what to do. And I think most importantly, if you do come from a high-risk area or have a reason to think that you may be significantly at risk, don't just rock up to a health facility Mm. somewhere and risk infecting it. Ring them in advance and find out what the protocols might be. Lovely, thank you. Well, we'll be talking some more about coronavirus after this, but um, but coming straight up after this little break, we'll be talking to Evelyn Chen, who's a neuropsychologist who's across all matters, concussion, brain injury, recovery, and what we do after it. So I can't wait to talk to her. We'll be doing that in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's time to welcome to the studio our special guest, (laughs) Evelyn Chen. Evelyn's a clinical neuropsychology registrar, and she's doing her PhD on the topic of tracking cognitive recovery in patients with mild traumatic brain injury, i.e. things like concussion, but using smartphones. Oh, those smartphones, they do everything these days, don't they? Um, So welcome to the studio, Evelyn. Thank you very much for having me. It's a privilege. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating area that you're working in, but uh, it couldn't be more timely to talk about this because it's been all over the news this week about... Uh, brain injury associated with sport and in particular AFL um, and the and the player deceased a while back Polly Farmer who was shown to have brain injury probably associated with his sport so let's go back to start but how did you get interested in the, in the first place I, I think I kind of fell into it um, uh, my background actually wasn't even in neuropsychology um, I was teaching I was a fine art student uh, and then just started doing psychology, fell into neuropsychology. And when you fell into neuropsychology, you got a head injury, so you got injured. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't had any head injuries at all. <laughs> um, just happened to be in the lab um, that does lots of um, research in addiction. We've got um, a, an app that's running called Alcohol Capture using a smartphone. Alcohol capture. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. What's that? It's just looking at um, people's um, use of alcohol, con- consumption of alcohol uh, on a daily basis. So what, they have to click a button or something every time they have a drink? Yeah, I believe they answer some questions on the app itself. So I'm not all round um, uh, informed about the app, but that's what the app does. Wow, I'd yeah. love to know more about that. I won't push you on it because it's uh, as doctors, we all know that when you ask people about alcohol, they tend to re- reveal about half the level of drinking that they really do. And <laughs> I suspect right. that people's self-report compared to what the app actually says are very different. But we'll move on from that because that's not really your thing. You're talking about smartphones and head injury. What do, what's the relevance of a smartphone well, with head injury? Well, we, we know with, with concussion, um, it's a... It's a direct or indirect impact to the head that results in rapid impairment of the brain function that typically resolves and is temporary. Um, the issue at the moment is because 
with um, recovery rates, we're looking at subjective reports from individuals who are concussed. And that's not really reliable. So currently by subjective reports, you mean recovery is how people describe they're getting better rather than any way of being able to measure it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's what's lacking at the moment. So there isn't actually a means of tracking cognitive recovery after a person has concussion. So the best way to do it at the moment is to have cognitive testing on a regular basis. And we can't actually have a person like a neuropsychologist see um, the individual on a regular basis because we're not readily available. Uh, and indeed, a lot of the pen, the traditional standard neuropsychology tests, um, there's a lot of practice effects on those. So they're not actually ideal. So, so you've got a smartphone that sort of says, how many fingers am I holding up? Well, not, not, not quite like that. <laughs> there are a couple of cognitive tasks in there. Yeah, what, um, what sort of thing does, do you have to do with your phone? Uh, they are uh, response time, kind of reaction time tasks, if you like. Oh, so a little um, touch this, little flashy light thing. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, a symbol comes up and you have to press the right button for it as quickly as you can, but you also have to try and inhibit control. Um, there is uh, another one where it looks at your working memory function uh, okay. as well, because we know um, with uh, concussion, things like processing speed, working memory, uh, uh, memory itself, um, uh, response times, all that is affected. So this is using a phone to track the speed of recovery. So is this in order to give a better idea of when someone should be able to go back to playing yeah, the sport? What, why are we doing this? Yeah, we're, we're hoping that the app would be able to capture essentially the subtle improvements of um, cognitive recovery um, because... We, we're not clear at this point in time because recovery for individuals is all very varied it's, it's, um, and it's very variable. It's very difficult to essentially just rely on subjective reports. But does it, why does it matter? Is it that if someone's still relatively impaired three weeks later compared to someone else, they should stay away from sport longer? Is that the theory? That's right. That's okay. right. So if they find that they are... If someone might say, well, I think I'm fine to go back... You know, it's been a couple of days. I feel fine. Let's return to play or return to work. Um, once they start playing or when they get back to work, there's cognitive load there. They find I, I can't do this. I can't look at the screen long enough. Uh, I can't seem to multitask. Um, but on objective testing, hopefully, we're hoping that the smartphone will be able to track those subtle improvements. So okay. if we can do baseline testing prior to them participating in the sport and then they get concussion, then we do check cog again, which is the app. Uh, where they do the check cognitive cog. check yep. cog, like yep. check check my cognition, so yeah, check I'll cog. Work that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so hopefully, when they're concussed uh, and they do the tasks in there, we'll be able to track those subtle improvements and over time. Back, and when they get back to baseline, yeah, yeah, yep. misdiagnosis. So, Evelyn, can I ask you? You said with the paper-based neuropsychology testing that there is a period of learning that people can learn how to do the testing yeah. better. Mm-hmm. How does this work with the app? Surely if people are pressing buttons and they, they can learn how to do that faster and it may look like improvement in cognition as opposed to actual recovery from a brain injury. Mm, well, that, that's when uh, yeah, the, the things that we can do in the tasks in the, uh, in the computer, on the laptop and as well on the phone to be able to kind of stagger that. Um, so the performance is vary depending on how you do things at that particular time. So you might do better 
uh, or think you might do better. We might slow it down for you. We might speed things up for you. You can't really tell. And I imagine that that's an advantage of the app, whereas paper-based things are fixed. An app is much more fluid, and you are able to make those changes that's much right. more easily. That's yeah. right. That's what we're hoping to do. Yeah, Evelyn, it's fascinating. I think uh, so. With the app, what I'm, I think I'm interested in is with the app, um, you're using this as a as a, a data collection tool, right? To to look, and then you're going to map out how sort of people recover. Yep. Is is there, is there also a prospect that this will be used as a sort of way of actually measuring individual recovery, so that somebody in the future they get a head injury, head injury, they will use an app to determine actually when they are well. That's that's what we're hoping to do. We need to to see whether the app is going to be valid and reliable enough to do that. Um, so ideally, if a person is engaged in some sort of contact sports, like my son who's 11 years of age, if he goes and does play footy, we do some baseline testing before he starts um, going onto the fields, plays footy. Let's say if he does have a concussion, then he starts <clears throat> using check cog again and hopefully we'll be able to track those improvements within his, you know, his own performance. So uh, it's my, my yeah, correct me if I'm wrong with my understanding of this, but does it require a baseline cognition assessment via the app prior to um, any future testing? As in, if someone you know came into the emergency department with um, a head injury and a concussion, but they hadn't done any prior testing, they couldn't really use this software. Is that right? No, no, that's not right yet. So ideally, we would love to have baseline testing. But if we don't, then hopefully we're, we're hoping that the app would be able to at least track those subtle improvements um, to a point where they feel that they might be comfortable. So the the study itself looks at using the app at tracking cognitive recovery objectively, but we also take into consideration subjective reports as well. So, so Evelyn, let's talk about this sort of brain injury because this is going to be of huge interest to people out there for themselves personally and for their kids playing sport take us right back to the start what is the process you get a head knock playing footy say you're not knocked unconscious but you rattle your brain so the old Elvis Presley thing shaking my nerves rattle my brain Um, but I'm still feeling okay what's actually the process inside the brain what what has happened when we hit the head like that well when when you hit the head what happens is uh, we've got the axons so these are like bundles large bundles of nerve um, fibers in your brain that get stretched we believe it gets stretched and twisted mm-hmm. uh, that that can't be picked up on your typical MRI so they're not torn they're just stretched and stressed we, th- we think yeah stretched okay. stretched and twisted um, so that can't be picked up on MRI, which is why lots of people just go into the MRI. Well, structurally, it looks fine, okay. um, but there there is cognitive disturbance. Uh, you get nausea, dizziness. Um, you know, things are moving too rapidly for you. You, you know, it's slowed processing. Um, you find that you can't do things as quickly. You find that there might be a little bit of memory loss. Um, you can't switch between tasks. Uh, so these things can't be picked up on an MR. So there's no proven structural damage on a scan, but there's probably something that's happened at a more microscopic level that we can't yeah. see. Yeah. So what's the right thing to do then? If that's happened to you or your kid, what should they do? That's, that's, that's the question that I think where research is very much needed at the moment, which is where neuropsychology testing is important as an objective form of measurement of cognitive disturbance. Um, because at the moment, 
uh, with Sports Concussion Australia, the guideline is if you believe you're concussed, then you have a deliberate physical and cognitive rest for the first 24 to 48 hours. So not just physical rest, but cognitive rest. Yeah, so what so, does that mean? So removing yourself from, I guess, looking at the screens too much, watching TV too much, let's say, um, uh, not reading the book for too long a period of time. So making sure that you're not staring at the screen if you're working, you're going back to work and not staring at the screen and reading information there for extended periods of time. So taking yourself away from the screens essentially for for that period of time. So, and Dr. Nick and I have talked about this extensively um, off the show, but we used to say for heart attacks and for other injuries, you know, it used to be stay in bed and rest. And we've changed our research and we've changed our understanding of those practices over the last 20 years or so till we get to the point where we say, no, after you have these sort of major physical insults, one of the best things to do is to get out of bed and to walk around within the limits of your capacity. And yet what we're saying for this these brain injuries is stay home and, and rest. And I, I was just wondering in terms of neuroplasticity and our understanding of other physical illnesses, this sounds like um, recommendations we would have given sort of 20 years ago. That, that might change. I have no idea, to be, to be honest. But at the moment, it seems to be first 24 to 48 hours deliberate um, physical and cognitive rest, after which you kind of grade yourself back in into light aerobic exercise and activity. And then if you're still feeling a little bit nauseous, uh, you go back again to resting. So those are the guidelines at the moment. Um, and I know for um, lots of people, it's essentially them basically taking themselves off uh, off work and off play. Um, uh, I know certainly, I think in the AFL, I think the rule, there used to be a guideline of about five to seven days, but now I think uh, the policy is that they have to be sidelined for seven days. But that those five five days to seven days is arbitrary at the moment mm-hmm. because everybody's individual recovery is different. So what's the evidence then about the recurrent nature of this? Because anyone can get a whack on the head. It doesn't have to be playing sport. But obviously, if you're playing sports, and I was looking at the data that AFL, funny enough, seems to have a higher rate of head injury than even rugby union, yes. which I found absolutely astonishing. Yes. It seems that one in three games of football that are played someone gets a significant head injury or concussive episode which is really high so the concern presumably with this is not just about a single episode but the potentially recurrent nature of it now I I may be (laughs) asking you out of your comfort zone here I don't know but do we know what the evidence is about recurrent milder head injury and what the risks are I think the literature is pointing towards the more concussions you have the higher um, the risk you are of having symptoms that are prolonged. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? But I suppose the question is if what we're doing to these axons that you described are sort of stretchy, twisty, but mm. not breaky, mm. <laughs> do they fully recover? And so when they're stretched next time, they say, oh, I've been through that before, I can manage. Uh, or are we accumulating damage even with these relatively milder injuries? Oh, well, we could be. I mean, if we're looking at something like CTE, for instance, chronic traumatic uh, encephalopathy. So just that- explain what. CTs because that's been in the news with polypharma. Complicated name that one. There's someone's interest in qualities of medicines, polypharma, which sounds like (laughs) someone's been down to too many antibiotics. But but, uh, what is chronic traumatic encephalopathy? Well, it's a, first of all, 
CTE is um, diagnosed post-mortem. So you really don't want that diagnosed while you're alive? No, no. This is not a good thing. No. No. Um, And it seems to be the case where it's um, uh, repetitive concussions that people are receiving. And this is through multiple, multiple repetitive concussions. But there's also evidence to suggest that there are sub-concussive blows to the head can also result in CTE. Um, and we, when we talk about subconcussive, uh, um, subconcussion, I guess it's where um, people get knocked in the head. So, for instance, if you're hitting a ball. So even the relative, so even the, I've always worried about that because when I used to play soccer, I was such a wimp, particularly when it was cold and wet in the UK. The ball was heavy, and, <laughs> and I'd try and hit the ball. I felt like someone had hit me in the head with a brick. Yeah, well, these subconcussions they, they they don't really necessarily result in concussion symptoms, which mm. is what's I guess. But it's a hell of a whack to the head yeah. to hit a soccer ball at yeah. speed. Yeah. yeah. And and do you know what we actually see under the microscope in CTE? What what is it? What do the brain cells look like? Well, I I I haven't looked at them, but from from mm, the yeah. papers that I've been reading, um, the 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 tau protein deposits essentially. Um, now that there's an about twenty twenty five percent pathology overlap with Alzheimer's disease, which also has tau proteins as well. Um, the, the researchers have said that the initial stages of tau protein deposits. Uh, in the Alzheimer's diseases occurs in the hippocampus and anterior cortex. Oh my goodness, is, now we are getting technical. In, in, in memory, <laughs> uh, which is involved in memory essentially. Um, but with uh, the tau protein deposits for um, CTE, it's found in the midbrain uh, and then it moves to the subcortical areas. So translate um, that for us. That means that it's a bit like Alzheimer's, but different places. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But I, 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 the query for me is that's in the initial stages because in in the in later stages, I would assume that they both look very similar. But there are researchers who say uh, that um, in CTE who say that. Um, with Alzheimer's disease, there's more beta amyloid deposits as well. I'm, I'm going to take it away from the complexities of microscopic changes <laughs> within the brain because yeah. time is upon us here. Um, and that is absolutely fascinating, Evelyn. I've got one last question for you. Are you going to allow your child to play contact sport? I would love for him to play contact sport, but he doesn't want to play footy. <laughs> All he does is karate at the moment, but I guess that's that's also contact sports. But, uh, but this, as far as I know, there hasn't been any punches or... Well, or hopefully he's good enough at karate that's the other yeah. person. <laughs> Evan Chen, thank you so much. That's been absolutely fascinating. Have a look at checkcog.org if you're a sporting organisation interested in head injury. Checkcog.org. No AU. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Oh dear, oh dear, there we are. Now we need to get back to our old friend, our new old friend, coronavirus. So, inescapable at the moment, isn't well, it? Well, really? it really is everywhere. Yeah, and I, I mean, I was trying to think of things to talk about this week, and it's just everything I looked at in the papers was about coronavirus, and you know, like the impending kind of doom. The imp- the stock exchange went, you know, like this week went down three percent, right? You know, it's just like things are being impacted on a global scale, not necessarily anything to do with the actual disease. So, do you have any financial advice for us, Prudence? No. When should we sell? When should we buy? 
Um, well, actually, hang on to things because if you start selling now, it's just dropped. You've just got to wait. It's going to come back, right? Oh, That's okay. my financial advice. Six, That's what my advisor six, told me. Six trillion dollars. Three percent doesn't, you know. That's just, you, and that's it. just my share portfolio. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Oh, I wish. Oh, well. Is that right? Six trillion. Six trillion dollars. Is that the global market? Yeah. Wow. Six trillion dollars. Just it disappeared. Over a little bundle of RNA that can't even replicate yeah. on its own. I mean, what a pathetic little creature to take six trillion dollars off the share market. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, we've got nine cases or whatever it was in this country at the moment. Did I say? The, the, um, yeah. But look, yeah. I mean, anxiety. By people are getting nervous, and I think we're seeing signs of that, both in terms of. Um, you know, people perhaps not socialising as much, not going out, avoiding public places. You're seeing a lot of pictures either on TV or, you know, in the newspapers and things, people wearing masks. Latent um, racism coming to the well, surface. That, absolutely. That is just a disgrace. Um, I don't know what to say about that, really. Um, um, but, yeah, look, I, mean, I think, you know, there is there is that rising anxiety. So, I, to my mind, there are a couple of things we can do, and I'll talk about some of them, which is just how do you alleviate anxiety. But one of the first things I think is actually just making sure you're getting the facts straight. Yeah, you know, and really thinking about the scale of what this is. I know it's you know it's potentially obviously quite a, it is a serious condition, and people have died from it. But you need to perhaps put it into some context. And one of them, as well as I think, is a, the, the pandemic is like a scary word. Is it's like oh, this is going to be a pandemic, and yes. it's you know, and that is really become that's something that the World Health Organization will at some point declare because I don't think they've quite done it yet. But can you just tell us what that actually means? Because people hear these words yeah, epidemic and should. pandemic. So right. what, what, what actually pandemic? are we talking about? Well, like, pandemic comes from the Greek, um, pan being all, uh-huh. and uh, dermos being people. So it's to do with like everybody, basically. And it's an epidemic. This is according to Wikipedia, by the way. Great source. Uh, an epidemic of a disease that has spread across a large region, for instance, multiple continents or worldwide. So, tick, we kind of got that already. Um, and they also sort of say, the World Health Organization says that it's got nothing actually to do with the severity of the disease, but it's to do with the geographic spread. So, um, and a pandemic is usually declared when a new disease for which people do not have immunity spreads around the world beyond uh, expectations. And of course, the lack of immunity is one of the crucial yeah. things. So a lot of people said, well, you know, we get the flu every year That's and right. we That's have amazing. hundreds of thousands of people with the flu, yeah. millions of people, we have tens of thousands of yeah. deaths. Why are we getting so excited about this virus? And one of the reasons is because we haven't met this virus in the human population before. We have no immunity. And so there is no group that has any protection against it. It It's a potential risk to everyone. apparently not. That's right. Apparently kids are immune. Well, yes. Apparently juveniles, prepubescent. Prepubescent. Panel beat. Where did you get this wonderful piece of it? Is that because they have lots of pet bats they pay with, play with, and they become immune to coronavirus? What are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. It, it struck me. I was listening to this epidemiologist because everything's coronavirus at the moment. So just about everything I'm reading and listening to. And I was uh, listening to this epidemiologist in the States, and, and she was talking about um, how, at the moment, as far as they know, because there's still so many question marks about so many aspects of the nature of the virus itself, um, but as far as they know, Kids are safe, prepubescent. Right. Certainly, that's borne out by the sort of statistics in terms of the cases reported, and certainly in terms of the mortality. So, the people who are dying of this disease are very much older 
And those who have other forms, you know, have chronic illness, which may be like immunocompromised. So it might be people with HIV. It might be people with, uh, you know, asthma and other sort of serious respiratory conditions, diabetes and so on. Those are the people who are going to be at risk. And age is a very clear factor. So, yeah, young people seem to be quite... Well, I want to put on my little doctory hat here because they may be safe, but if it's like other viruses, and hepatitis A would be a good example, where kids under about the age of eight get a very mild illness, they don't get sick with it, and they become immune for life. But they still have the virus and they can still transmit it to others. So I I wouldn't want to think that kids are somehow immune to this virus. If if you take first principles, and certainly this is not my area of expertise, but I would assume that kids are safe in the sense that when they get the virus, they only suffer mild illness. But as a reservoir of potential infection to others, I would assume that on first principles, kids are potentially Dangerous. Yeah, look, and I think, as you say, we don't really fully understand the kind of the mechanisms here. Yeah. And I think I read yesterday that there have been some cases reported where people have had the condition, have recovered, and then they've had a second bout, um, certainly symptomatically. And, 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 and they were clear the, you know, after the first bout. So it's, that questions the whole immunity <laughs> thing, that you can catch it again a but month we, later. But we're getting into physiology here where we're well, supremely unqualified Absolutely. to make intelligent <laughs> comment. But, but anxiety is the way we began with this. And the thing that yeah. struck me is we've, we've just been through some of the worst bushfire experiences Australia's had. We've yeah. then had torrential flooding. We've had this on the background of global concerns about climate change and so on. We have multiple reasons why people are being exposed to anxiety-inducing phenomena on a global scale, and now we have coronavirus. Yes, it's like one thing on top of another. And it's, I mean, it's a complicated kind of set of social issues as well, you know, like there are direct impacts on people, um, but for many people it is like the prospect of something, you know, it's like, uh, I'm okay now, but what's it going to be like next week? Um, Am I going to contract this condition? Is there going to be food in the supermarkets? Are people going to be panic buying? Am I going to be restricted? Can I go on holiday? You know, um, and if I do go on holiday, might I get stuck on an island somewhere for at least two weeks with people who are sick? I mean, so let's let's go back to some of those sort of anxiety basics. We have talked about this before, but I think it's worth revisiting in this current climate. What are the basic principles about how you look after yourselves and particularly perhaps how you look after your kids who are reading and hearing about this stuff? And maybe themselves are getting very concerned about what all this means. Absolutely. And I think, um, look, I mean, uh, the first most important thing is about getting factual information and good sources of information. Social media, unfortunately, is full of rife with misinformation. And it's so, quite possible that so is radiotherapy. Yeah. <laughs> well, we try to stick, you know, to, you know at least we've, we've, we've tracked down some sources of information. And that's, that's one of the first things, I think, to do, that when you're, you know, limit your exposure limit your exposure to your social media and to other sources of information so only you know spend an hour a day not eight hours a day poring over like the latest you know information. so i think that's actually a really helpful point that you probably aren't going to do yourself any good by over informing yourself and going over and over and over no. and constantly reminding yourself about how awful things are that's right and how terrible things might be i mean there's a lot of opinion so again it's about limiting your exposure and also you know being trying if you can to have a critical eye so when you read something and you think oh my goodness that's really scary it's like well is there actually a reference for that is there a source for that information can and what, I get something? And what about with the kids should we be turning kids? the tv off and uh, saying oh don't watch that you know that'll just make you anxious or should we be letting them watch it and then talk about it how do we deal with this with our 
second. I think, you know, from a parental perspective, family perspective, I guess you know your, your kids best. So you know, I don't think there's any specific way of doing it. But again, I think limiting exposure, but talking about it is very important. My understanding of, of children watching the news, as a child who was actually not allowed to watch the news because it was... A, it you was have a word too, with your parents about yeah, that. I, I think so. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons behind my parents stopping me watching the news, they said I could read the news, I could talk to them about the news, I could read the newspapers, I could read articles. But the visual, the dramatisation, the selling that there is on a lot of the commercial news stations and they'll use big headlines, they'll use lots of sort of scary looking videos and often there's very little information that's actually conveyed. There's just you know, something that's used to sell the next ad. What's your opinion on sort of watching the news versus maybe reading some of this stuff? God, that's a really good question. But I think you've got a point that, that we present, um, especially on television news, it's very much, you know, sort of in short bites, it's high impact. Um, and it's often probably not that considered. I mean, so, yeah, I think and there is something to be said about reading and going again to good, reliable sources. And I think I have to congratulate Dr. Misdiagnosis's <laughs> parents for, for their sagacity <laughs> and common sense, because yeah. one of the things we know is that the six o'clock news will sh- sometimes show very dramatic and disturbing footage that wouldn't be allowed on the children's mm. program shown at the same time of day. So yeah. I'm, I'm all for keeping kids away from television versions. But what you're saying, Prudence, if I'm hearing you correctly, is don't try and shelter them from all the information. But if it feels right, if that's the way you work at home talk to them about yeah, it. Yeah, I think having conversations and that, that, that goes for all of us, not just the kids, I think. Being able to have conversations with your, you know, your partners, with your rest of your family, with your friends and so on. Mm. Again, without spending the whole of Saturday yeah. night talking about it. So limit the conversation as I well. So but probably put a t- get the team time limit, okay? We have 30 <laughs> minutes on coronavirus. Yes, and then we'll just get into talking about Trump. We'll talk <laughs> about things that actually don't get our anxiety up. Uh, so, you know, sport, for example. Uh, Dr Neil, I was just going to say, people do want to read a bit more about immunology uh the immunity not immunology immunity uh my source was uh professor Anne Rimmeron the professor of epidemiology at UCLA school of public health and she was talking about the children um being immune excellent well thanks for that panel Peter we could talk about but we're going to put a guillotine on this time limits on coronavirus time to stop after the break after the break we'll be coming back with much sweeter matters when we talk more about sugar you're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Misdiagnosis, you've been thinking about sugar. Yes, that's right. I think with all this sort of coronavirus hysteria, lots of us like to turn to the comfort of maybe a sweet treat, whether that's, you know, sort of cake or soft drink or something to alleviate some of that anxiety. And it it got me thinking about sugar and good sugar and bad sugar. And I remember sort of almost a year, two years ago, there was all this conversation around sugar and quitting sugar and these bits and pieces. And I thought, what's happened to all this conversation? I mean, it's probably been eclipsed by things like the coronavirus, but I thought maybe it'd be time to revisit some of that. Yes, sugar's a really, really important question. And you're quite right, because there was all this stuff about should we have a sugar tax and diabetes is rampant and obesity is appalling and it's all the fault of sugar. And then suddenly we stopped talking about it, or at least publicly. Yeah, exactly. So I thought we'd go back to some of the basics with sugar and, and what is sugar and then maybe have a bit of a chat about 
you know, what what the research is on what we should do about sugar, some of the addictive pathways, that sort of thing. So to start off with, I mean, sugar doesn't all come in one form. We have the one word for it. But there are sort of four big types of sugar. You've got your glucose, your fructose, your sucrose, and then your sort of corn starchy sugars as well. And the glucose and the fructose are what we call monosaccharides. They are just the, the one molecule. Whereas your sucrose is just a combination of glucose and fructose together, which makes it a disaccharide. And the, the reason why this is important and why we, we sort of care about this is when we look at food with sugar, often the question is, do we quit sugar entirely? And does that mean we stop having fruit and fruits with, that are high in inverted commas sugar? Or is that a lot of nonsense? And I think these messages can become very confusing for the public because there's a lot of mixed messages out there about what's good So and I'm not. already mixed between mono and disaccharides and which I should be quitting and which I should be slurping <laughs> up by the gallon. So you said it's important to know the difference. Why? So as I was saying, because when we look at the sugars um, that are in sort of inverted commas, the healthy sugars, they're the sugars that occur naturally in fruits and vegetables. And mostly that's sucrose, fructose and glucose, but they are naturally occurring sucrose, fructose and glucose, which means that they come with a whole lot of other uh, dietary bits and pieces like uh, like fibre, like water, things like that. They're not what we call free sugars and free sugars are where you've added glucose or fructose or sucrose as a refined product to another product. So you're saying that, for instance, if we take a piece of fruit, Mm. the sugar in there is essentially the same as the sugar in Coke, but it's better because we've got all the fibre and other goodies that come with the fruit. Is that what you're saying? So when we break it down, yes, it is exactly the same as the sugar that you have in Coke. The difference is it's not been added to a product, so it's in much smaller quantities. So, you know, there's no such thing as a sort of good or a bad sugar. And I think that's what I wanted to explain here, that, you know, these glucoses, these these fructose molecules, they occur naturally and we add them. The ones that occur naturally occur in smaller quantities than what we're adding, and they do come with other other products. So is this why there's a difference between eating a whole apple or a whole orange and having a glass of juice? Is that because we've squeezed out the sweet bits and kept the sugary bits exactly. and got rid of some of the... I'm really glad you brought up that point because that, that's exactly what we're talking about today. So when, you, when you're talking about maybe your carton of orange juice and you think, oh, I'll have my vitamin C, I'll have my orange juice in the morning, what are you actually having? You're having a refined product. So you're taking the orange itself, which is the natural forming uh, fruit that you can get off the tree, and you're refining it. You're taking the juice. Maybe you take the pulp. Maybe you don't. Depending on where you're getting your orange juice from, maybe you're adding sugar to it. And then importantly, how many oranges? Now, I I know for a fact, Dr. Nick, that you don't have an automatic orange squeezer at home that you squeeze orange juice yourself when you do. So how many oranges does it take for you to get a glass of orange juice in the morning? So I like my orange juice double pulpy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I get all the good bits out of it. Um, but yes, you're quite right. So it would be at least two or three oranges, maybe more, depending on it's the juiciness. It's approximately six oranges normally for a sort of uh, 375 right? milliliter. Yeah, wow. yeah. Now, if you're having a small glass of orange juice with some soda water or something, maybe you're just doing two or three. But often it's about six oranges per glass of juice. Now, yeah. if you think about that, could you think about sitting down and eating six oranges you know, in segments. It's it's a huge amount to consume. And this is where we run into trouble with sugar. Sorry, Mr. Arsene. So yeah. it just occurs to me that um, 
Uh, on this show, we've we've covered uh, the keto diet a little bit mm-hmm. and where carbohydrates are the enemy. Um, you go for a high fat, high protein, low carbs. And those following the keto diet often refer to this distinction in the juices between um, a carb totals and sugars and net carbs, which is minus, which is where fibre is involved. So there seems to be some kind of offsetting. Is that is that your understanding as well? Yeah, my understanding of the keto diet is removing the, the carbohydrates. Um, the, the difficulty with carbohydrates is they do contain sugar as well. It's not a naturally formed sugar because it's a refined product. You're making the bread. It is difficult to, for people to limit their quantity of carbohydrates because they taste brilliant. And cutting them out is a good way of cutting out calories. Essentially, when it comes to you know, weight loss, it's calories in versus calories out. The reason I wanted to talk about sugar is people often don't realize how many calories in they're getting because you're having your glass of orange juice in the morning or you're having a soft drink with your lunch and then all of a sudden you've got these extra calories and you know an extra 50 grams of sugar that you're consuming a day. So let's talk about that glass of soft drink because um, I've tried to eschew the soft drinks in recent years because I've been battered around the head with how bad sugar is for you but boy I used to like them <laughs> how, how much if you take an average can of a soft drink let's not use any names mm-hmm. but um, an ordinary can of a well-known type of soft drink that's not a no sugar variety but the standard type how much sugar is in it uh, I think it's about 14 to 16 teaspoons of sugar in the standard can of soft drink. Yeah, incredible. Yes. You oh. can, if you read the labels, that's right. Yeah. What, five grams to a teaspoon or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's what I use. So I yeah. always used to look at the cans and go, whoa, that's six teaspoons of sugar. So, 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 <laughs> so Dr. Nick, you say you, you, you always used to love these, these soft drinks, these sort of, because um, they made you feel good. And that's because they work on our dopamine receptors in our brain. So this sugar, and this is where the time with coronavirus, when things are feeling a bit crap at home, and you reach for the soft drink or you reach for the chocolate or something like that, it's because it gives you a dopamine hit. Mm. And that dopamine is that feel-good hormone. So can I have my dopamine hit? Aren't I allowed to feel good? Of course, you are allowed to feel good with that dopamine hit. The problem is the more sugar you consume, the more you need to get that mm. same dopamine hit. It's an addictive pathway. Mm. And I think fructose is one of the worst for that, isn't it? Fructose that, is, is one is, of the which worst. Which is that really healthy sugar because it's in the fruit. So, and this is the thing. There is, I mean, there is no such thing as a healthy or unhealthy sugar. There is just sugar. If you're getting fructose in, say, a banana, you're getting a smaller amount of sugar than you would if you had fructose added to something. Yeah, I don't know how many bananas you'd have to squeeze to get banana juice, but <laughs> it wouldn't get that much. So it makes sense because there's, there's sugar in the banana, but you're quite right. If I eat a banana, I've actually eaten quite a lot of food, mm. and I've probably eaten relatively little fructose. And six to eight grams of fibre. Yeah. If you so, look at some product labels, again, so fr- and fructose, you get that high fructose corn syrup, which is really concentrated fructose, which is added to so many products. And you probably don't even notice it because it says... HFCS. Yeah. So, so if we boil it down to the advice that if ordinary person listening out there is thinking, oh, my God, I can't eat fruit because it's all full of sugar and it's, all the sugar's the same and it's just like having a bar of chocolate, mm-hmm. as to have it, which, of course, isn't the case from what you're saying. <laughs> but what's, what's the advice about how we should manage sugar? If you could just give a sort of overarching uh, summary. So the overarching advice is avoid free sugar, which is sugar added to products. And the way you avoid the free sugar is by reading the nutritional labels and eating food that is close to its natural source as possible. 
So stuff that hasn't had sugar added. So all these processed foods, sort of cakes, biscuits, chocolates, all the things I love. But we're not even talking cakes, biscuits, chocolates. Oh. We're talking, you know, hoisin sauces. We're talking tomato sauces. We're talking breakfast cereals. A lot of them had added sugar. So try and eat food as close to the natural source as possible. Wow. Oh my, you've just, my dopamine levels have just <laughs> slumped. So as soon as this is over, I'm going to have to go and have a chocolate croissant and coffee with three sugars. <laughs> and it's a pandemic epidemic, isn't it? Mm. Obesity, which is sugar-related, yeah. and we were talking about those earlier. Yeah, and oh, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you a final, final question. So sugar tax, it, it makes ah. sense to me. We should tax the bejesus out of sugar so that it's just harder to stuff this stuff into foods. What do you reckon? Oh, Libertarians, the phone line is. It's been proven to work in other other countries. It's been proven to work in other countries. It's something we should be aiming towards. But the less sugar you have, the less you'll need. So you'll still get that dopamine hit. It's been proven to work in other countries. The less sugar, the better the dopamine. So I'm going to cut back my chocolate and then really get the dopamine when I have it. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. You can listen anytime with Triple R Radio On Demand. And you can always download the podcast. So you can listen to us on the road, in the bath, or anywhere that you like. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.